So that's why these instructions take up so much word count in the story. God wanted them precisely this way. He wanted it done precisely this way so that when Jesus finally came, they could point to him as one and say with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the plan. And that was the purpose behind these fairly elaborate instructions. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The ultimate purpose of this entire Passover drama was to help people see and recognize Jesus as the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. You'll recall that the RMM Bible reading plan puts the first half of chapter 12 with the whole of chapter 11. So if you're looking for commentary on verses 1 to 21 of chapter 12, you'll need to go back one episode. In that episode, we see the announcement of the final plague, and we hear the instructions that God gives to Moses as to how the event of the Passover is to be commemorated forever among the people of God. In verse 22 of chapter 12, we return to the actual narrative of the night that changed the world. Moses went out from the presence of God and called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. We re-enter the story now at verse 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Moses continues in his instructions to the elders, saying, Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. So here you see that Moses is combining his instructions for the actual evening ahead and the future commemoration of this evening through the ritual of Passover. Everything here has this double focus. We're talking about a night that will become the centerpiece of a whole new walk with God. That's the balance. That's the tension in biblical faith. The moment matters, and so does the life of obedience and worship that follows. We see that immediately in verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. To bow the head is to say, I submit, I agree, I accept. The people understand what this service will be saying, and they receive that. They own that in faith, and they agree to transmit that to their children. They will preserve this odd right, and they will capitalize on its essential oddity in order to teach the essence of their faith to the next generation. That's very important for us to see. 
Remember, the ultimate purpose of this entire drama is to prepare people to see and recognize Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Douglas Stewart makes that point explicitly in his commentary on this passage. He says, The ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to Christ, to the purpose of his death, memorialized in the ritual of the Lord's Supper that now replaces the Passover, and also to the unity of those accepted by him as his people, his body, closed quote. So that's why these instructions take up so much word count in the story. God wanted them precisely this way. He wanted it done precisely this way, so that when Jesus finally came, they could point to him as one and say with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the plan. And that was the purpose behind these fairly elaborate instructions. Pastor Paul, I'd like to jump in here if I can, because I've often wondered, why is it that Christians don't celebrate the Passover anymore? You say in the program audio that the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to Christ. So wouldn't it be helpful if we continued to recognize and celebrate this particular Jewish holiday? Well, that's a good question. And to be clear, I don't think that too many folks would disagree with the idea of celebrating Passover as a sort of educational experience intending to help Christians connect with the past and identify some of the symbolism behind the Lord's Supper and behind our worship and understanding of Christ himself. That, I think, is perfectly fine. But as to whether or not we should gather as a church and celebrate Passover as part of the liturgy, I think most Christians would say that's inappropriate. Passover was a sign and a shadow. It pointed forward to the greater exodus, the greater work of redemption in the person and work of Christ. And we celebrate that now when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So celebrating it as a small group exercise or in Sunday school for education's sake is okay, but celebrating in church as part of a liturgy is probably not okay. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's where I would land. Certainly, I get nervous when I hear Christians saying that we have to celebrate these Old Covenant rituals. I know there's some people out there who think we should still be going to church on Saturdays and still celebrating Passover and the Feast of Trumpets and all the rest, but I think that kind of legalism and that kind of backwards-looking liturgy is clearly discouraged in the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, 16-17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Close quote. In the earliest days of the church, there was a mixture of Jewish background people and Roman pagan background people. And one of the earliest controversies in the church had to do with whether or not Roman people had to become Jewish, essentially, in order to become Christians. And Paul here says, absolutely not. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. You don't need to go to church on Saturday. You don't need to participate in Passover. You don't need to eat kosher. Those things were preparatory and provisional only. They pointed forward. But the thing they pointed forward to is here now. They pointed to Christ. Christ is the substance. Christ is the goal. Worship him. So that's why the central ritual or festival, as it were, in the New Testament church is the Lord's Supper. That's our Passover, right? Yes. There is no doubt that in the Last Supper, 
Jesus is very intentionally stepping into the structure and bones of the Passover ritual and giving it new meaning and significance. So he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he takes the Old Testament form and he fills it with new meaning and significance. Do this now as often as you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8, Paul says to the Christians in Corinth, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here, Paul is giving instructions about the need to practice a little bit of church discipline, actually, in association with their festival of communion. There's a brother there in Corinth who's living in known, open, public sin. And Paul is saying, he can't be part of your Lord's Supper observances. Just like your mom used to sweep up all the yeast and breadcrumbs to purify the house before Passover dinner, so too you need to do a little sweeping and cleaning before communion. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Which festival? The festival of the Lord's Supper. Let us celebrate that festival with purity and integrity before the Lord. So, Paul has completely absorbed and transformed the Passover imagery and rituals into his instructions here for how to conduct the Lord's Supper. So this is our festival based on assuming and surpassing the Old Testament ritual of Passover that we're learning about here in this story. All right, that is super helpful. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, the narrative of the actual tenth plague that we've just read there is surprisingly brief. As I mentioned, the buildup and the instructions about how the event was to be commemorated were surprisingly long and elaborate, but but here now the event itself is told with the barest of detail. God did it. He did what he said he would do. He came in wrath and judgment, and only those who had taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb were spared. And it's important to notice that God did this personally and intimately. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This reminds me of that verse in Genesis about the flood. Noah built a boat and invited people to take shelter inside. But then when the hour came, it was the Lord who shut the door. Only God can act in this way, and only God does act in this way. Now, some of us struggle here. Jesus talks so much about turning the other cheek and loving our enemies that we wonder if God is acting appropriately here. Is is God being... Christian here, if we can ask the question that way. And of course, the answer is that he is. He is acting appropriately to his own character and sovereign majesty as the one holy God over all creation. You see, there are some things God can do that we can't do. 
And it isn't as though retributive justice is wrong, per se. It is just that it is wrong for you to seek retributive justice and to effect retributive justice by your own hand. The Bible makes that very clear. In Romans 12, 19, the Bible says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there is retributive justice. I will repay, says the Lord. And here we see him doing that very thing. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we were told about a Pharaoh and a whole people who participated in an unthinkable act of genocide. It was wrong. It was horrific. It was evil. And God saw. And now he is acting simultaneously to save and to judge. That's how God works. That's who God is, Old Testament and New. It is understanding this that allows us to act as Christians. It is often said that Christians can be pacifists because God isn't. Do you hear that? Do you understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying? Let me try and say that another way. Christians can be meek and merciful because God sees all, remembers all, and repays all. That's what I'm saying. All sin will be paid for. There will be justice, right? That justice will take place in the body of Christ on the cross or in the body of the person who committed the act in question. So here, in this story, every house was covered in blood, either the blood of the firstborn child or the blood of the Passover lamb. Those are our choices, Old Testament and New. Verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The last Pharaoh to be blessed by a Jew was the Pharaoh who was blessed by Jacob at the end of the book of Genesis. A great many years have passed since then and much water under the bridge. But here again, we see the seed of Abraham mediating the blessings of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The Hebrew seems to indicate the Egyptian people hurried the Israelites out of the land. They pressured them to go. So not only are the Israelites allowed to go, the people of Egypt en masse are pressuring them to leave. Go now. Take some money. Here are your wages. Go, lest we all perish. That's the sense. Again, just a reminder that God knows how to restore what the enemy has taken. He is in no one's debt, and he is just. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, 
besides women and children. Let's just pause briefly here. The format of this program does not allow us to go too deeply into any of these potential controversies. So let me just say that there is a lot of work being done by scholars and linguists here on how the ancient Hebrews used and understood these sorts of numbers. Most scholars now don't think that this Hebrew word aleph means thousands. They think it means something more like families or clans or units. So, for example, one linguist that I read on this says that the word appears to have originally referred to the number of fighting men produced by a single village. The ancient Israelites mustered according to village units, which he said likely numbered around 12 people, 12 men on average. So, 600 of these units, 600 times 12, actually equals about 7,200 men plus women and children. So we may be looking at a group of about 30,000 people in total. Now, obviously, this is not a matter of church discipline. You, you can probably translate this word three or four different ways within the boundaries of Orthodox Christianity. But it is helpful to remember that we are dealing with an ancient culture and an ancient language that we are still working at understanding. So, what we have here is a large group. Exactly how large is difficult to say. However, we can say that it also included people who were not Israelites by birth. We see that very clearly in verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So let's just remember that Israel has always been about more than physical descent from Abraham. The Apostle Paul is eager to make that point in the New Testament, and we are seeing why right here. Obviously, a lot of other people saw what God was doing and joined themselves by faith to the covenant community. We assume here that a large number of Cushites, for example, joined in, with the escaping Israelites. Moses is said to have taken a second wife from among the Cushites. So that's worth remembering also. This was a diverse group, united by faith in the promises of God. Verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Most of the commentaries that I read all make the same point here. The text is trying to communicate that the actual Passover night marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. That's what's being communicated by that, that very night language. Whether it was so many years to the day is neither here nor there. It may have been, but that's not the point. The point is that their time as slaves in Egypt came to an end that very night. And so this is a night of watching and remembering. The future Israelites would keep a nighttime festival to remember the moment of their glorious liberation. Verse 43, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. 
It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now, if we take these verses collectively in terms of what they say about who may eat, the sense that we get is that this is a communion meal. It is exclusively for those who have joined themselves to the covenant community. It is not for people who are just passing through. So verse 48 makes it clear that foreigners can eat of it if they join the community, if they believe and get circumcised. Even slaves can eat of it. Rich and poor can eat of it if they have formally joined themselves to the covenant community. It is, or at least it is supposed to be, the same with the new covenant communion meal of the Lord's Supper. It is for those who have formally identified with the body of Christ. It is not for passers through. Of course, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, but it does matter whether you are in or out. This is for for us. This is a family meal. This is for the brothers and sisters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to something you said near the end of the program audio. You said Christians can only be pacifists because God isn't. I think I'm struggling with both sides of that. (laughs) Are you saying that Christians should be pacifists? And are you saying that God is not a pacifist? As I said, I'm really not sure how I feel about either of those statements. (laughs) Yes, both of those statements probably need a little unpacking. Let's start with the easier of the two. I think it would be hard to argue that God isn't a pacifist. He's clearly not. He is the judge, and he judges fairly but firmly. The conquest in the Old Testament, for example, which takes place after the Exodus, is depicted in the Bible as an act of divine judgment. God wasn't just saving the Israelites. He was simultaneously condemning the Canaanites. And he was doing a very thorough job of it. In fact, King Saul, later in the story, gets into trouble with God when he fails to execute fully God's judgment upon the Amalekites, one of those Canaanite tribes. So in 1 Samuel 15, 32-33, Samuel the prophet shows up and he says to Saul, How come you didn't kill Agag, the king of the Amalekites, like God told you to do? And Saul hymned and hawed and Finally, Samuel took matters into his own hands. Verse 32 says, Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Close quote. So let's be clear. God is not a pacifist. He says that about himself in Deuteronomy 32, 39. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. All right. I'll give you that one. (laughs) God is definitely not a pacifist. But are we supposed to be pacifists as Christians? Like I said, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. And of course, it depends on how you're defining pacifist. 
The Bible is clear that God gives a certain right of violence to kings and magistrates. So Paul says in Romans 13 that the king does not bear the sword in vain. So the the king can use the sword. He can use violence to uphold justice and to secure the safety and stability of the realm. And we are to be in subjection to the king or to the magistrate. So from that, most Christians have believed that you can serve as a police officer or you can serve as a soldier under the authority and mandate of the king. But as private citizens, Christians are not to use violence. In Matthew 5, 39 to 40, Jesus says, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So we aren't to use violence to protect our dignity, our property, or our rights. Now, some would argue that you can use violence to protect others. So if a robber breaks into your house and threatens the safety of your children, for example, most people would admit that as a reasonable exception. But Jesus is pretty clear. We aren't to use violence to protect our dignity, our property, or our rights. In that sense, Christians are supposed to be pacifists. And again, it only makes sense for us to be that kind of pacifist because we know that God is not. He will judge the evildoer partially and imperfectly now through the sword of the king and then perfectly, severely, and eternally at the final judgment. So in the end, nobody gets away with anything. Amen. Well, that's that's a good reminder for all of us. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.